0: you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn uh, once again in our evening series to the final book in God's Word, Revelation chapter 14, is where we are going to be together uh, this evening. It's true if you read through God's Word with any degree of a regular diet and any type of systematic study that it is utterly impossible to read too far before you're confronted with the realities of God's justice against sin. And as much as many people these days like to take detours around certain parts of the Bible to excise God's wrath and righteousness from the scene of Scripture, Revelation 14 is one of those texts before us this evening in verse 6 through 13 that permits no such detour as it sets our course straight into that righteous indignation that God has against the unbelieving world, and so it comes in the form of three sermons from three angels. So let me read verses 6 through 13 and then pray for our time and we'll begin together. Listen now as Christ speaks to us once again through His perfect Word. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. To every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the lord from now on blessed indeed says the spirit that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them as for the reading of god's word let's pray together once again father we do ask that you would give us understanding that you would give us earnestness as we come to this text wanting to learn the truth from these angelic messages that you might work within our hearts The appropriate fear of you, the souls that long to worship you in response to what you have spoken as true, truth about your justice and righteousness towards sin. So give us the heart of Christ as we listen, give me the mouth of Christ as I preach, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Of all of the many stories, I feel like I have in a folder that represents something of the splendor and and power of preaching, particularly preaching with courage. I think my favorite comes from a scene in the 1560s in Scotland. The monarch at the time was King James VI, and one of his ecclesiastical opponents was a famous and effective preacher by the name of Robert Bruce. And King James one day decided that he was going to show up at Bruce's church on the Lord's Day and basically heckle him from the gallery. And so he came to St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, and there Robert Bruce was preaching. And as Robert Bruce began his sermon, he, of course, was speaking publicly. But up there in the Royal Gallery, King James was making a mockery of the message as he was entertaining his entourage with this loud and irreverent babble. So Bruce stopped preaching. And then James stopped talking. Bruce started preaching again. James started talking loudly again. So Bruce stopped preaching again. And James stopped speaking again. And then Bruce started preaching again. But this time, because he understood what was happening, he said this, it is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings, that when the lion roars, all the beasts of the field. Quiet than the great word that he spoke directly, surely, into the eyes of King James. The lion of the tribe of Judah is roaring in the preaching of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent before him. It said that James was silent for the rest of the sermon. And the reason I tell you that is because what we get in our text, as I said earlier in the service, three rather stunning sermons, boomed forth from loud angelic voices that John hears above. And these are sermons that call for silence. These are sermons that call for submission, for worship and witness, for repentance and rejoicing. And kids, I hope that you understand that God places a supreme importance in the Christian life on preaching. For how are we to know God and believe in God except His Word being preached, Romans 10 says, to our ears? Uh, so I wonder, students, even if you come in on the Lord's Day and think, well, maybe this is just a sermon I've got I've to get through, and then we can get to the stuff I perhaps enjoy more. But what I want you to see this evening is portrayed before our even eyes and these stunning statements and great visual pictures is that God continues his preaching program to the nations even to the very end of time. It's a preaching program that's full of salvation through judgment. We're going to see that in each one of these sermons. So if you weren't with us two weeks ago, we left off, you might remember, in verse 5 of chapter 14. It was there that we saw the Lamb of God, none other than Jesus Christ. He was standing upon Mount Zion. So that picture of him standing with his people. That was this picture of victory and in Christ's surety. And it was a, a picture that many readers and surely even hearers of Revelation might have needed by that point, because chapters twelve and thirteen, immediately preceding chapter fourteen, were chapters that announced the great dragon who's not other than Satan. He's called in reinforcements in the form of these two beasts that have risen at his command from the earth and from the sea. And now the devil, because he knows his time is short. He's come to wage war against Christ's church in the days ever since Christ's ascension. And he's waging that war with ever greater wrath because he knows he's running out of time. And this is a war that we've seen often throughout Revelation is going to claim many Christians' lives. But the scene in verse 1 through 5 of chapter 14 was that scene and an assurance of a victory. We're going to get some of that assurance again tonight. But as we look at these three angels and their three sermons, uh, I want you to see the essential truth that each sermon is presenting. The first is a sermon about fear. The second is a sermon about a fall. And the third, the longest, is a sermon about fury. So three sermons in my one sermon. A sermon about fear, about a fall, and about fury. Look again at verse 6, a sermon about fear. John says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, you might have been with us long enough to know that this phrase here in verse 6, of those who dwell on the earth. It's something of a code word phrase in Revelation. That's speaking of the unbelieving world, those who are not trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, those who aren't expressing repentance towards Jesus Christ. So this is a sermon, again, addressing them uh, directly. But you'll notice the phrase is used also of this angel comes with a booming voice and an eternal gospel. So it's everlasting good news that he means to preach before the hearers of all the earth. It's everlasting good news, which means it's this permanently valid message and proclamation. And kids, you might be like some of those people I mentioned just a few minutes ago that sometimes feel like you just have to sit through the sermon that's rather drab and boring and maybe altogether dull. But I assume that if you heard an angel or perhaps saw an angel flying overhead this evening, And that angel boomed forth with supernatural power, a message. You surely would listen, wouldn't you? So notice verse 8 and see if you can see what the good news is. I'm sorry, verse 7. This angel said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. You might want to ask yourself, well, what's the everlasting good news in that gospel sermon? You see, it's an announcement that is really a summons. Anyone who knows that God is creator, you have to fear him and you have to glorify him. That's the angel's message. But what you need to understand there is underscoring in the middle of verse 7 is the timing of this sermon. Do you see that? The hour of his judgment has come. And so, if I'm right, I think we're to understand these sermons apply most directly to that time which is the hour of Christ's judgment, which is at the end of all things. Uh, These are messages that go out one final time at the end of the age to all people, that you must know that God is creator and the only proper response is to fear and glorify Him. Or perhaps I think what's more likely is actually this message is delivered when the judgment has come, right? The hour of the judgment is at hand. It's already too late. You're going to be made, now in the visible manifestation of God's justice, you're going to be made to fear and to glorify Him because you're going to know exactly who He is. It's a sermon about fear. Of course, some of you need to ask that question. You've been raised in the church. You've come to... Lord's Day services, perhaps for years, maybe even decades. You know quite well that God is creator and redeemer. But do you truly fear Him? Do you glorify Him? Do you worship Him who made all things? If not, this is a sermon of everlasting good news. And why is it good news? That's the question again. Well, of course, if you are a first century Christian, hearing Revelation read in your hearing for the first time, Or perhaps you were able to read it yourself for the first time. A first century Christian who knew immense suffering and persecution. This war spiritually raging in the heavenly places that's claiming a number uh, of different martyrs throughout the area and throughout the region. This is surely good news, isn't it? Because what is it saying? But evil's not going to win in the end. Evildoers won't hold sway at the end. God will one day be worshipped. By everyone, because he is creator. So it's a sermon about fear. Number two, the second sermon, verse eight, is a sermon about a fall. Look at what we're told another angel, a second, followed saying, Fall in, fall in is Babylon, the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. During the winter freeze of a few months ago, I happened to be reading this well-known wizarding series of seven books, and I was in the seventh book, and there's this scene where a wedding is suddenly disturbed and broken up because this disembodied voice arrives announcing, fallen, the ministry is fallen, and everyone begins to scatter in, in fear and terror, And that's the same kind of effect that the second sermon is meant to have on the watching world because, of course, those books were talking about falling, uh, the fallenness of something good. Here is the fall of something bad. There was the fall of something that was fighting for righteousness and truth. Here is the fall of Babylon the Great, which is going to show up actually quite strikingly in a few chapters to come. And Babylon, if you might know it, from Genesis to Revelation, it, it pretty much is is the way of saying this is just sin city in the world. Babylon itself is representative of all the unbelieving world because what the Bible is always telling us is that the story of humanity is really the tale of two cities. You have Babylon and Zion. The city of man and the city of God. The city of sin and the city of the Savior. And here is another end time announcement and summons to the world that the city of man, the city of sin, Babylon. It will fall because it will not stand at that day of judgment. And notice underscoring the sinfulness of Babylon. At the end of verse 8, she made all the nations drink the wine of the passion or the wrath of her sexual immorality. And that tends to be the ordinary thing that Revelation ascribes to Babylon by way of her sinfulness. As this sexual transgression And I do think it's right for us to understand that as physical sin, but also even figurative sin, for all sin against the Lord is something of spiritual adultery. Here is the unbelieving world power that's always seducing people in the world, always calling people in the world to live however they want, because no judgment is going to come. To live up a hedonistic life, because everything's going to be okay. But the second angel says, No, this city is going to fall, which leads to the longest sermon, this third sermon, moving from a sermon about fear and a sermon about a fall to a sermon about fury in verses 9 through 11. It's probably right to say that the most famous sermon ever delivered in America happened in 1741. Who was at a small New England town of Enfield, Connecticut. It was delivered by a man named Jonathan Edwards. And he and some ministerial colleagues were on this revival tour of sorts. And they showed up at Enfield that day to preach. And one biographer says, as they walked into the church room, the assembly was, quote, thoughtless in vain and hardly conducted themselves with common decency. It was a rather raucous revival environment. soon that quickly changed because Edwards took as his text Deuteronomy 32 verse 35 their foot shall slip in due time and he proceeded to preach a sermon that's now famously called sinners in the hands of an angry God sinners in the hands of an angry God as he shot forth spirit anointed arrows of soul-searing truth of the judgment that was going to come and that previously irreverent and raucous assembly by the end of his sermon, according to one hearer who mentioned in his recollections, before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying out throughout the whole house, What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I am going to hell. It's a sermon that very much sits in the path of the third angel's sermon. For notice verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hands, he will drink the wine of God's wrath. So I want you to see two things in this third sermon particularly. I want you to see, first of all, who will be judged. This is a sermon of righteous indignation. This is a sermon about God's just fury against sinners so who will be judged well the text says there in verse 9 you see the same thing essentially repeated at the end of verse 11 those who have received the mark of the beast And we mentioned in previous studies how in chapter 13, it it probably is rightly taken in that original context. The mark of the beast was this mark that belonged to the Roman Empire. This one of kind of economic flourishing and advancement. That without this mark, you couldn't move along into prosperity. But at the same time, it wasn't just an economical reality. It was a spiritual reality. It was this mark that showed that your true allegiance was to Rome for its worldly passions, for its worldly pleasures, for its worldly prosperity. And in the same way, what you need to understand is this mark is a counterfeit of the mark that God places on His people. Because we've seen how the dragon and the two beasts represent this unholy, satirical and even satanic trinity. And Satan is putting his mark on his people. In the same way, of course, God, the Holy Trinity, places His mark on His people in baptism as we're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So so who is going to be judged? Well, of course, this is simply saying those who belong to Satan, which is to say anyone who remains in sin, for their allegiance isn't to the Lord alone. Perhaps more striking to our consciences this evening is not who will be judged, but how they will be judged. Notice verse 10 as it continues. He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy lambs and in the presence of the holy angels. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. Perhaps reading those phrases you can understand why one commentator calls this the most terrible scene in all of Revelation. Another says, the warning is remarkably intense. with a degree of understatement for, of course, God's righteousness. His justice is remarkably intense. And students, you're going to come to a place, I'm sure, in your own life that you might have someone tell you that to oppose God and remain in unrepentance and unbelief is no big deal. For, yes, you won't go to heaven, but you're just going to die and you won't suffer this conscious eternal torment. But you notice how chapter 14 actually wants to remove that notion altogether that we might know the horrible and eternal consequences of judgment. Using twice this language of torment that it goes up forever and ever and they have no rest. That's a terrible scene, isn't it? A fury that belongs to the faithless. Of wrath that belongs to those who don't follow the way of Jesus Christ. And parents, I wonder what you do with the truth of hell in the Bible. You, of course, don't have to do what Susanna Spurgeon did, but you could do what Susanna Spurgeon did. It was said that she, with her many children, she devoted many hours in the day and, of course, times before her children when she was praying for their salvation. And so often her prayers were for them to, of course, close with Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon, that great English preacher of the 19th century, later on said in his adult life that the Lord used those prayers of his mother in many ways to bring his heart to saving faith because what she would also tell her children, of course, not just praying for them, but she would say, you must close with Jesus Christ because if you stand before him at the day of judgment, my prayers will accuse you to him because you've heard the truth. I have prayed for you to come with me to heaven. So you must have discernment of course and wisdom how you might use the reality of God's justice and judgment against sin as you parent your children, grandparent your grandchildren, relate to your friends. But the reality of this text is it is no understatement or even overstatement to call this a sermon about God's fury on the faithless. So it makes logical sense if you understand that these three sermons probably hearkening forward to that hour of judgment. You have not feared the Lord, sermon number one. So now you will be made to glorify him. Now you know, sermon number two, as the victory has been won and it's fully and finally ushered in, that Babylon is fallen. And now you know, because you didn't come to me, that what you are going to drink for all eternity is the wine of my wrath that belongs in the cup of my anger. So parents, of course, you don't leave your children, nor do we leave our friends, neighbors, or co-workers with the simple realities and the dreadful realities of an eternity in God's punishment. Because we want them to know how they can escape the eternal death that their sin deserves. How you can escape the eternal punishment that your sin deserves. And it all comes by focusing on what we're told in verse 10. This cup in God's hand. It's the cup of God's wrath. The wine of His wrath that belongs into His cup of anger. And do you know, children, what Jesus prayed that night in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus always understood the horrors of sin. He always understood the full fury that He was going to have to undergo at Calvary. And so he rightly said, let this cup pass from me. But because of his faithfulness, his obedience, his love and desire for sinners like you and me, he added to that, didn't he? Yet not my will be done, but yours. And Of course, the father said, no, you must go to the cross at Calvary because it's there that you're going to drink this cup. The full fury of my wrath in this cup of anger, and you're going to drink it to the very last drop so that all my people that I have called to my name will be saved." So they don't have to hear a sermon, a fury at the end, but they get to hear a sermon about a future that belongs in everlasting rest, which is where the text is going now. Because you move from three sermons to two simple calls, even applications, It's it's a good sermon. We would even grade it accordingly as such in a preaching lab at the seminary. Three points with two applications. For verse 12 and 13, each give us one summons at the end. And it's true in our Presbyterian heritage that we've always made much. I don't think we made too much. We've made much appropriately about the place of preaching and the life of God's church and and for God's people. And one of our shorter catechism questions, number 90. I don't know how many weeks into the future on Sunday evening we'll get there. But eventually, Lord willing, we'll get to number 90. Which talks about how we're to hear God's word when it's preached. And it simply says we're to attend unto it diligently with all preparation and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and and practice it in our lives. So how do the angels' sermons, how does God want the angels' sermons to be practiced in our lives? How are we supposed to practice the preaching? Well, number one, a word of endurance. Two things to see at the end, a word of endurance. Look at verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God. And their faith in Jesus. And I do hope, students, you you notice this link here between endurance and obedience. You show your obedience in your endurance. And you show your endurance in your obedience. Perhaps a simple way you might think about it. As an ordinary soldier endures in the fight as he obeys the orders of his general. In the same way, we as Christ soldiers, we show our endurance in the fight as we obey and keep the faith according to the word of our Savior. And so again, John is hearing this summons to perseverance and endurance. And it's a perseverance and endurance in the present because of what's coming in the future. He's not trying to remove or belittle any of the persecution or hardship that his people are going through. But he's wanting to lift their gaze to that coming future age when everything is going to be made right. And of course, we will experience and live in the victory once and for all. And so the same thing now is, in the midst of whatever circumstance you're in, the Spirit, through His Word, doesn't want to belittle your difficulties, your sorrows, your sufferings, your trials or your troubles. But in light of what's coming, what's what's guaranteed, you can endure now because of what will happen then. So number one, it's a word of endurance. Number two, finally... It's a word of assurance. Look at verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. It's a rather stunning statement in Revelation. Because it seems as though in the balance of the book or on balance of the book, that we don't need this Holy Spirit sign and seal of approval of those who die in the Lord, die well. But so important is that for God's people to know that it seems as though the Spirit gives His affirmation to the statement at the beginning of verse 13. You might remember that rich scriptural principle that we need two witnesses to testify to a particular truth. And here are two divine witnesses to remind you that those who die in the Lord are blessed, for they will rest from all their labors. So it's pointing us forward, isn't it? These simple sermons and these simple words of endurance and assurance. to yet again that reality and revelation that you can belong to one of two destinies. You can belong to the destiny of eternal torment. Or you can belong to the destiny of eternal triumph. Eternal retribution or eternal rest? Eternal horror or eternal happiness? I wonder which destiny will be yours. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank you that you speak to us so clearly about the realities of your justice and righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for the many ways in which we have cheapened your holiness. Lord, help us to understand the true nature of our sin. Our oh, Father, we do ask that you would help us even more to understand the true mercy and grace that's offered to us in Jesus Christ, that he has taken our place in drinking the fullness of your wrath. So bring us, we pray, into that place of everlasting blessedness and rest in your presence. That we might endure all the trials and temptations of this life. Knowing that this isn't the end. But an eternity of glory and beauty and splendor awaits with you forever. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.